Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. As we come to chapter 3, last week we saw that Peter began to talk and share with us about the certainty of the second coming of Christ. And uh, he finishes his letter then in verses 11 through 18 by telling us how that ought to motivate us to live. It's kind of what we've been singing about this morning. And so follow along as we read beginning in verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. It says, therefore, because of everything that we've talked about, because the Lord is coming back, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked." But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be both the glory, excuse me, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Being motivated by the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I remember between my junior and senior years at Cedarville, uh, my parents celebrated their 25th anniversary by taking a two-week trip to Hawaii without me. And uh, they left me, my sister was married, so they left me home. I was home alone. And, uh, um, uh, but anyway, I remember as they were gone, I had the house to myself, me and the dog, and, and I remember the dishes piling up. And I remember about four days into the occasion thinking, you know what, I really ought to do those. Uh, but uh, just kind of kept putting them off and putting them off and putting them off, putting them off. And finally, the day arrived for my parents to come home. And the certainty of their coming was, was there. They were coming. And as I looked at the kitchen, which now there were no clean dishes anywhere in the cupboard, I said to myself, I better do the housework before my mother, no matter about my father, before my mother gets home, you know, and it was certain she was coming and that certainty motivated me to do something. And uh, so when she got home, all the dishes were put away nicely. She knew, though. I mean, you know, you know how moms are. But Peter is talking to us to hear about the certainty of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, Peter shared with us that one day in the relatively near future, The Lord Jesus Christ will return and he will judge this sinful world. And for those who have rejected Christ, 
that day of future judgment will result in eternal punishment and them being uh, sentenced to hell, sentenced to, the, to, to live forever in the lake of fire, separated from God. But for those of us who are believers, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, it will be the fulfillment of our hope. The coming of the Lord will be like a dream come true. It will result in us experiencing the joy of heaven, being in the presence of the Lord, being in the presence of God for all of eternity. And so here in this last section of the letter, Peter reminds his readers and he reminds us that because all of these events will take place just as he mentioned them, this truth should have a direct effect on us as believers. It should motivate us to live lives that are pleasing to God and lives that are, are going to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, folks, one of the things we need to understand here is this. The purpose of prophetic truth is, is not just to give us some speculation about what is going to happen in the future. The purpose of the prophetic truth in Scripture is to motivate us to live for God, to be ready for that day. Unfortunately, there are many believers who spend all of their time, all of their energy studying prophecy, studying future events, running here and there to this conference and that conference, and yet it doesn't motivate them in their daily living, and they do not live lives to the glory of God. Oh, they can tell you all about what's coming, but it's not impacting them today. The purpose of the prophetic truth is to impact us today, to prepare us for that day. And so Peter gives us this morning three things that should, we should be motivated uh, to because of the certainty of the second coming. And they are motivated to live a godly life. We're going to look at that here right now. Secondly, we should be motivated to witness, to share our faith. And third, we ought to be motivated to grow spiritually because of the certainty of the fact that Jesus is coming again. Let's look at the first one here, being motivated to live godly lives in verses 11 through 14. And he begins in verse 11 with the word, therefore. And, and he says to us in verse 11, since all of these things will be dissolved. And that refers back to verses 7 through 10, where we ended last week, where Peter has described for us the, the fact that one day all of this universe is going to be destroyed. All of this universe is going to, going to dissolve. And Peter's encouragement to us is seen in the end of the verse. In light of that fact, Peter says, until that occurs, what manner of persons ought you to be? And the answer is very clear. It should motivate us to live lives of holy conduct and godliness. Peter says, in light of the fact that all of these things are going to happen just like I told you, and that one day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back, the earth as we know it is going to be dissolved, judgment is coming for those who don't believe, heaven is waiting for those who are, are saved. In light of all of that fact, what manner of persons ought you to be today? How should you be living then today? And really, this is not a question. Peter's making a statement here. 
And that phrase, what manner of persons, could really be translated this way. How astonishingly excellent you ought to be. In light of the fact that this is happening, how astonishingly excellent you ought to live. In fact, the the Lord is coming back. Man, you ought to be ready for that. You need to be prepared for that. In light of the second coming of Christ, in light of God's promised judgment, Peter encourages his readers to live with the hope of the coming of Christ and to allow that anticipation to impact the way they live their daily lives. And he says to us here in verse 11 that our lives ought to be characterized by two things, holy conduct And by the way, I think holy conduct refers to my external actions, my behavior. In light of the fact that the Lord is coming back, I ought to live outwardly in in a godly way, a holy way. And and then secondly, godliness. And I think that that word speaks to my internal attitudes of my heart and the fact that my life is devoted to pleasing the Lord. And so Peter says to us here, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, how astonishingly excellent you ought to live both outwardly and inwardly, both externally where everybody can see the things you do and the, you know, the things you say, and also internally, your actions, your, your attitudes, and, and the desire of your heart to please the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the key phrases in this section is the word looking. And we see that in verse 12, looking for. And, and the, the word looking there means to eagerly anticipate, to, to await, to be expectant. And it refers to that attitude of excitement and expectation as we wait for the Lord's return. Now, we have that in other areas of life, don't we? Man, I'm really looking forward to that fill-in-the-blank vacation. Man, I'm really looking forward to that trip that we're going to take. You know, man, I'm really looking forward to that game. Man, I'm really looking forward to this or that. We're eagerly anticipating. We're looking forward. Folks, Peter tells me that knowing, knowing that this world And all that is in it will one day be destroyed, one day be dissolved. We fix our hope. We fix our hope not on anything here in the world. We fix our hope only on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are looking for that, we are eagerly anticipating. We're not tied to this world We're not tied to the things of this world. We are eagerly anticipating our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But look what he says in verse 12. He says something interesting. He says that we can hasten the coming of the day of God. That that word hasten uh, means that instead of fearing this coming and judgment, instead of fearing the destruction, We should long for it. We we should hasten it, if you will. Man, I can't wait for it to get here because we know that everything we have, that we have everything to hope for and we have nothing to fear when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Have you thought about that? You know, 
the thought of the destruction of this earth should not cause us to fear or despair. You know, I, I know a lot of Christians, man, pastor, I, I stay away from the book of Revelation. That's just a scary book. You know, we have absolutely nothing to fear in the book of Revelation. We have absolutely nothing to fear about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us as believers, Titus says, it is the blessed hope. It is the glorious appearing of our great God and say, there is nothing for us to worry about. We have nothing to fear. We should not despair about the fact that this world is going to be dissolved. Because our lives are not to be wrapped up here in the things of this world. Rather, we should be looking for that day in joy, not in fear. By the way, look at the, the, the phrase, we are hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, now, the day of God and the day of the Lord seem to be two different things. The day of God seems to be referring to that eternal state when, when we are with the Lord forever. The day of the Lord, as we saw last week, seems to refer to those events that are part of that final judgment of unbelievers before the eternal state. And so Peter says we can hasten that eternal state, if you will. Well, how can we do that? How can we hasten the eternal state? How can we hasten the coming of the Lord? I think by sharing the gospel to the lost world around us. By sharing our faith with those that we come in contact with. Now, think about it. If God's work today is calling out a people for himself, is saving people from their sins, then the sooner the church is completed, the sooner the Lord's going to come. Have you ever thought about it that way? You know, we don't ever know who that, you know, can we put it this way, last person before the Lord comes. Can you imagine? You know, we should be sharing our faith with everyone as we hasten that day. Look at verse 13. Peter then says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. We should joyfully anticipate the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And the, the word new there means new in quality, uh, different. It's not going to be the same. So the new heavens and the new earth are not going to be the same as they are today. They're going to be different. And one of the ways they're going to be different, they're going to be different in character. What does Peter say in verse 13? It's going to be a place where righteousness dwells. Righteousness certainly doesn't dwell here, does it? You know, righteousness doesn't dwell in the, in, on this old earth, but righteousness is going to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. And so on the basis of all that is ahead for us, believers ought to be living in constant expectation always looking for the return of Christ, living in a way that pleases God, sharing the gospel with all that we know. That's what we ought to be doing. Then look at verse 14. Peter says, therefore, for this very reason, therefore, because of that, for this very reason, beloved, looking forward to these things, what are those next two words? Be diligent. For this reason, as believers look forward to these things, 
we are motivated to live in a way that reflects that eternal perspective. And it is imperative that we as believers should be diligent so that when Christ returns, what does he say? When he returns, we will be found by him in peace without spot and blame. We should be motivated to live a life of of holy conduct and a life of godliness. We should be sharing our faith and and living in, in a way to please God so that we hasten the day of the Lord. And we should do all this diligently so that when Christ returns, we will be found by him in peace and without spot and without blemish. You know, the phrase found by him. Think about that phrase for just a moment. When the Lord comes back, we are going to be found by him. You ever play hide and seek? No. And sometimes we play hide and seek. And some of you, if you can remember back that far, you were really good at it. You know, and if you didn't get found, what eventually happened? The person says, ollie, ollie, in free. Come on out. I can't find you. And, you know, This phrase, found by him, the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to have any trouble finding anybody. We are all going to be found by him. That's a sobering reminder that nobody's going to be able to hide when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And how are we to be found by him? In verse 14, in peace. In peace. In this context, peace seems to be referring to the fact that believers are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So that no matter how terrible things might be here in these last days, we have a peace that passes worldly understanding, right? We have a peace that the world can't understand. How can you be so at peace when the way of the world's going like this? Because I know where my hope is. I'm going to be found in peace. Can I challenge you right now? Are you going to be found in peace by the Lord when he comes? Are you in a right relationship with him? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? That's the only way you're going to be found in peace by him. The only way. And when he comes, he's going to find us all. No one's going to hide. We will all stand before God and give an account of our lives. Will you be found in peace? If we are diligent to watch for his return, if we are diligent to live godly and holy lives, then we will not be afraid of his coming. We will not be ashamed at his coming. And notice what he says in verse 14. We will be able to meet him not only in peace, but without spot and blameless. I think that's a a direct contrast to the false teachers who remember back in chapter 2, Peter says they were spots and blemishes in the church. And Peter says, no, 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 no. When the Lord comes back, we are to be without spot and we are to be without blemish. And I think that without spot, again, refers to the character of our lives. That is, that is, the Lord looks at my life, the character of my life is one of being without spot. And the, the, the blameless refers to my reputation, the reputation of my life. 
And so when the Lord returns, am I going to be found in peace, in a right relationship with him? And if I am in a right relationship with him as a believer, am I then going to be found without spot and blameless? Is my character such that it's going to be pleasing to God? Is my reputation such that it's going to be pleasing to God? You know, for believers... The promise of Christ's return should provide a powerful motivation for us to live a life of integrity, for us to live a life of holiness, personal holiness. One day he's coming back. When's it going to be? I don't know. Could be today. We don't know when that day might be. And the question Peter asks us is, what manner of person, how excellent should you be living because of that? And how excellent are you living today? Are, are we living lives that are without spot, that are blameless before God? We should be motivated to godly living. Look at the second thing. The second motivation comes in verses 15 and 16, and it's a motivation to witness. And once again, here in verse 15, Peter speaks to us about the long-suffering of God. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul writes about. So let's just stop right there. Peter speaks again about the long-suffering of God. In verse 9, we discover that the long-suffering of God was for the benefit of sinners, giving them time to repent, giving them time to call on God for salvation. Here we see that it is still the long-suffering of God that keeps him from sending Jesus Christ back into this world at the second coming. God has every reason to judge this world and destroy it. But in his mercy, he is long-suffering with us. You realize, folks, that this is the day of salvation. This is not the day of judgment. This is the day of, I remind you, now is the time of salvation. You know, now is not the time of judgment. Judgment is coming. There's a point on the man wants to die. After that, what? The judgment. When the Lord returns, the judgment's coming. Now, God is, at this point in time, in these last days, the Lord is long-suffering with us. He's calling us to salvation. Today is the day of salvation, not judgment. But... The second coming of Christ will signal the end of God's patience, will signal the end of God's long-suffering. But God right now is giving the world time to repent. But since God's judgment has not yet come, since God's wrath has not yet been poured out on us, that should motivate us to witness to the lost world around us. And now Peter comes to that difficult section here in verses 15 and 16, and he, and he talks to us about Paul. He says, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures." Uh, Peter turns now to Paul uh, and Paul's writings for support in his argument here. 
And, and in these verses, I think we get a beautiful picture that existed between the early apostles in the presentation of the gospel. They were uniform in the presentation of gospel because it was the truth of God's word. Notice what, how he describes Paul. He describes Paul as our beloved brother, Paul. Was that always true between Peter and Paul? As I mentioned on Wednesday night, for those who are here, Mary comes in there somewhere. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yeah. That was just because some of you are getting sleepy. I can see that. You know, in Galatians chapter 2, go read that sometime, where Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I had to confront Peter to his face because he was wrong. And I can't imagine that was a fun time. Could you imagine being in the room when Peter and Paul are going, I'd probably just slink away. No. But here at the end of his life, Peter says, hey, he's my beloved brother. Despite their differences, at the end of his life, Peter is able to call Paul a beloved brother. And folks, that ought to encourage us. That, that, that state of love and forgiveness would do a lot for the cause of Christ in our world today. If Christians would live in that, in that kind of an attitude. But Peter here clearly points out a couple of facts to us. Number one, Paul's letters are scripture. Paul's letters were inspired by God. The letter that he is specifically noting here, we're not sure of. And it's not important. It's not necessary for us to know exactly which letter of Paul's that Peter is talking about. And in fact, I think the reason for that is in verse 16, he says, as in all of his epistles, Peter believed that Paul received wisdom from God and many of the things that Paul writes, look what he says in verse 16. You know what? Many of those things, they're hard to understand. Can I have an amen on that? You know, you read Paul's letters and some of them are really, really difficult. Read Romans 9 through 11. You know, there's some difficult truths there. And, and the phrase hard to understand literally means difficult to interpret. And so Peter, encourage it. Peter says, you know what? Some of that's hard to understand. For us as we read it, some of that's hard to understand. Peter isn't implying, however, that Paul's teachings are impossible to understand He's simply recognizing, hey, some of them are a little bit more complex than others, especially when it comes to prophetic revelation. And I think what was going on here is that these false teachers were trying to use the writings of Paul to win their argument against Peter. And they're trying to pit the two apostles against one another. And, there's, oh, and what they're doing is these false teachers are twisting Scripture. Notice what he says, they are untaught and unstable people, twist to their own destruction. They are untaught, they are unstable, and they're twisting, they're distorting Scripture for their own purpose. The word twist there means to torture on the rack. Well, we don't do that much today, and I don't, uh, you know... Um, really get into to promoting movies, but if you want to see what that might look like, watch Braveheart. You know, what, what put, being put on the rack is not a pleasant time. And, and what Peter says is they're doing that to Scripture. They're twisting, they're, they're distorting, they're perverting Scripture. Folks, false teachers take verses out of context 
they twist them and distort their meaning and they manufacture doctrines that are contrary to the word of God. You turn on the television and you see some teacher who grabs, a, especially a lot of times, an Old Testament verse, yanks it out of context, reads one phrase of it, and then goes off and teaches us some crazy doctrine. That's distorting Scripture. And while Peter undoubtedly had those false teachers of his day in mind, this is a good warning for all of us. We have to accept the teaching of Scripture, and not try to make it say what we want it to say. Notice what he says here. What happens when people do that? What happens when people twist Scripture and distort Scripture? They do it to their own destruction. And the word destruction means rejection. It speaks of rejecting eternal life which results in eternal condemnation in hell. So since this is the day of salvation, it's not the day of judgment, we must be diligent to do all that we can to win the lost because we don't know how long the Lord will be long-suffering. Well, there's one last thought as we wrap this up this morning. The last motivation is the motivation to grow spiritually. As Peter concludes his letter with a warning and an admonition, basically what he's going to say to us in verse 17 and 18, you know the truth now. I've shared with you the truth. Now you need to apply it. Now you need to, what did James tell us? Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Apply it. We must always be applying scripture. And he says, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. The word beware means to be constantly guarding yourself. They knew the truth. But Peter says that's not sufficient protection. You need to be constantly on guard against the error of the wicked. We must be constantly alert to the truth of God's word so that we will not be carried away by the unscriptural lies of the false teachers. In other words, Peter says to us, you know, don't just read this once and say, oh, okay, I got it. No, continue to get into it, continue to study it, continue to read it, continue to, to be alert to it so that we are not taken in by the false teachers. And I think this, folks, and listen to me carefully, I think Peter is warning us against breaking down those walls of separation that must stand between a true believer and the false teachers. There can be no fellowship between truth and error. And that's happening within the church today. Oh, let's not worry about the doctrinal differences we have with this group or that group. Oh, we're, we're all on the same team. Oh, you know, we, we're all, you know, there's only one way to heaven. And, this, and, and we, are, we are standing in union with people that do not believe Scripture, that are not teaching the truth of Scripture. And Peter says, no. No, we need to be, have that. We need to have that separation. There should be no communion with these false teachers. And so believer, be alert. 
Be on your guard so that you would not, verse 17, fall from your own steadfastness. It's interesting, the word fall there really means to, in, in Acts chapter 27, means to have a shipwreck. And, and think about that. That's a great picture because the Christian who falls away from the truth of God's word, the, the Christian who falls away from the doctrines of God's word will make a shipwreck of his life. Peter says, make sure you're, you're firm. Now, true Christians cannot lose their salvation. We can't fall from our salvation, but they can fall from the truth. And that's seen in the use of the word steadfastness. Peter's not talking here about losing our, our, our faith, our salvation. He's talking about losing our firmness, losing our firm footing, losing our establishment in the word of God. Instead of being uh, firmly established, we become unstable. So he's not concerned that we would fall from salvation. He's concerned that we would slip from doctrinal stability and lose our confidence in the truth of God's word. Folks, the stability of our faith, our stability of, of our life, excuse me, comes from our faith in the word of God, comes from our knowledge of that word and the ability to use the word of God to practically apply it in the daily decisions of my life. Well, how can we maintain our steadfastness and avoid being led astray by false teaching? We'll go on. Verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Growing spiritually. And the idea here is of continually growing. We, we must grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must grow in grace, first of all. And that has to do with those Christian character traits. You know, Galatians chapter 5, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Even back in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 7, we see some of those character traits. We're saved by grace, amen? But grace doesn't end there. We must also be strengthened by grace to endure the difficult trials of life. In, in reality, and we don't have time to go into it, there is grace for every situation and every challenge of life. And to grow in grace means to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Because he's the one from whom we receive all grace. But secondly, he says we must grow in knowledge. Grow in knowledge. And notice it's not just the knowledge of the Bible. It's in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of us that have a lot of knowledge of this. And that's good. But there's all, a lot of us that have just a lot of knowledge of the Bible. And it's one thing to have a knowledge of the Bible. And it's quite another thing to know the Son of God, the central theme of the Bible. The better we understand, excuse me, the better we know Christ through his word, the more we grow in grace. And the more we grow in grace, the better we understand the word of God. So we are to be continually growing in the grace and knowledge. And, and the word of God, 
and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ will be our safeguard against all apostasy and against, our heres- against heresy. You know, just as a boat needs an anchor, so the Christian needs the anchor of the Word of God. Well, what's the result of that? Two things. What's the result of spiritual growth in our lives? We bring glory to God. It, glorify God, it glorifies God when we keep ourselves separated from sin and from error. And it glorifies God when we grow in grace and knowledge, for then we become more like him. Motivated to godly living. You know, that is what the second coming ought to do for us, the certainty of the second coming. Are you ready for that day? It's coming. It, 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 Peter said it is certain, but today's the day of salvation. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not ready. You're not ready. But fortunately for you, God is still long-suffering. And I encourage you to make this the day of your salvation. Christian, if the Lord were to come today, would he find you without spot and without blemish? Externally and internally, living in a way that is pleasing Thank you for listening. For more information on our church, located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.